Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to get these doggies. They're out of the pan. We got to get them back in the in pan. In the pen, sure. In the sure, pan. We got to get them over to the last podcast network, Country Jamboree, June 18th, 2022, at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. Come and check out all the shows that you love on the last podcast network. We'll be in front of you in our meat space, and we cannot wait to entertain you and have a great time. But for those of you that can't come in person, Go to momenthouse.com slash LPOTL and buy your live stream ticket. Yes, yes, you too can watch us perform our jangly country jamboree from the nudity of your couch. Absolutely fantastic. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Thank you so much for your support. And we are so excited to be at the OG Grand Old Opry. Hail yourselves. There's that princess. 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 There's that menstruation. Can I try another one? Yeah. Menstruation. (laughs) Next. Uh, Syphilis. Syphilis. Did I do it? You're just saying. You're just repeating. (laughs) These are vocal exercises. So we're yeah. vocally exercising vocally them. exercising everything. Menstruation. Menstruation. Syphilis. In my mind, I'm doing it in an accent. <laughs> oh, kiss me deadly. Oh, that's it's the one. Fucking that's ki- the song. It's kiss me I deadly. It. It's kiss me deadly. Yes. Thank you so much for all of your emails that for, for me going, and knew exactly what the, you knew exactly what it was. Hundreds of you knew exactly what it was. We're referencing uh, replacements the previous episode. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so thank you you for solving that earworm and welcome to no dogs in space ladies and gentlemen i'm marcus parks i'm carolina Dago, and we're here at replacements oh bob barker is in fact still alive no sorry. shit yes he's still alive he's 99 years old i'm sorry i don't do that young i don't do that thing no he's old he's an old man yeah. and he knows it and he's going to die sorry welcome to the replacements part four 4.0 should we say yes. but we'll get to that at the end of the episode So when we last left our favorite Midwestern boys, their fourth release and third album, Let It Be, had become a critical smash and was well on its way to becoming a college radio classic. But 
success with critics and college radio nerds very rarely translates to commercial success. And it's been said by many an indie and alternative band that you can't eat good reviews. But even if good reviews did make a meal, the replacements likely wouldn't have taken a bite. Drawing on their own special concoction of self-hatred and arrogance, the replacements effectively ignored the acclaim surrounding Let It Be. Instead, they were perhaps rightfully more concerned with the fact that their record label, Twin Tone, wasn't giving support as far as touring went, which, combined with low record sales, meant that the replacements were barely scraping by. Well, yeah, I mean, like, remember, low record sales really means, like, they're doing great, but <laughs> they, they're selling, like, 11 grand uh, records. That's amazing. Much better than Stink. Much better than Sorry Mom. Yeah. And, and they're doing fantastic for an itty-bitty little independent record label. It's relative. They're it's, trying to move ahead. It's They're trying all to relative. go up. Yeah, yeah. They're definitely like selling more than like the Suicide Commandos, but when they look at... Ooh, look at that. <laughs> look at that. Just throwing out the Commandos. Like, not as good as the Commandos. <laughs> they're selling more than them, but you oh, know... Yes, they are. But they're looking across the town at Paisley Park to what Prince is doing. They're looking at R.E.M. <laughs> yeah, they are it's looking like, at how, R.E.M. How are we not R.E.M.? <laughs> <laughs> well, furthermore, it's important to remember that the band's manager, Peter Jesperson, was also one of the co-founders of Twin Tone Records, meaning that his loyalties were always split between his job and his baby. His baby being, of course, the replacements. Mr. Mom. Yeah. <laughs> He's Mr. Mom. He is Mr. Oh, what a tragic <laughs> Mr. Mom he is. <laughs> There was, however, a solution to both problems. See, Twin Tone had always seen themselves as sort of a farm label, and their thinking was that if one of their bands got a major label deal, it would only mean bigger and better things for the Twin Tone back catalog. So the process of signing the replacements to a major label began. Well, I don't know if it really began as much as they continued trying to get signed <laughs> yeah. to a major label because they've been trying since the year before, since 1983. Yeah. So there was hardly a search. Like the record labels were, they were coming to them. They were they were showing up at their gigs and in introducing themselves like, hi, I'm Todd from A&M Records, to which Paul Westerberg would respond with a, yeah, sure, and I'm a monkey's ass. <laughs> you know, like a hit the road jack kind of thing. Yeah. And then Peter would come into the dressing room and say, hey, did you meet Todd from A&M Records? How did that go? No. <laughs> and Paul would be like, I sent him to score some coke an hour ago. <laughs> it went badly. <laughs> I fucked it up. He's not coming back. <laughs> but a lot of these A&R guys, you know, from EMI, Columbia, A&M, they were coming in and seeing if the replacements were viable, like yeah. for a possible record contract. And nothing really came out of it, you know, at all. And Todd never came back with that coke. <laughs> but now... If he was a good A&R man, he would have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in 1983. But now... Let It Be is out, yeah, and it's an achievement, and it's time. So the band, they set up a major label showcase at CBGB's on December 9th, 1984, and opening for them was one of their favorite singer-songwriter musicians, the one they listened to while in the van touring all over the country. I mean, this was a huge get for them. Mm -hmm. Alex Chilton. Oh, yeah. Give me a ticket for an aeroplane Ain't got time to take a fast train Lonely days are gone, I'm a-going home My baby just wrote me a letter I don't care how much money I gotta spend Got to get back to my baby again Lonely days are gone, I'm a-going home My baby just wrote me a letter When she wrote me a letter Said she couldn't live without me no more Listen, mister, can't you see I got to get back to my baby once more 
from Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And just like the replacements, Alex didn't have a driver's license and dropped out of high school in the 10th grade. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, that we just played, that was the Box Tops. That was Alex Chilton's first band. He was 16 years old yes. when he recorded that. Yes. That was the voice of a 16-year-old boy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And and you know what? Alex Chilton, he became an overnight teen idol with that song, The Letter, that came out in 1967. It was, as you said, Huge hit. Yeah. So Alex Chilton and his band, The Box Tops, they spent years touring around the country, doing TV appearances, uh, playing here and there, this school, that place, whatever his manager told him to do. He had to do, including what songs to record and play. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is back in the old day. Like, this is in the days when uh, musicians were little more than high. I mean, it's worse than hired guns. Like, I mean, they are treated like absolute fucking Garbage. They're treated like pets, basically. Yes. <laughs> like yeah. they're, they're like trained monkeys. Like, yes, sing this song, you fucking idiot. Do it. Yeah, it's like and a freak show, kind of like when they would go from town to town and yeah. then they would let their monkey out and stuff <laughs> and, and then get all the money and just feed him some gruel. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. Not surprisingly, it fucked the guy up a bit. He was not living a normal childhood at all. No. Alex Chilton was 16 years old. He had groupies, adoring fans. He was famous. He was touring with the Beach Boys. He was doing LSD with the Beach Boys. <laughs> Hell, he even stayed at their house for a while one time. And after a crazy drug-fueled drunken party, he woke up one morning in Dennis Wilson's living room <laughs> and noticed he was sleeping on the sectional couch next to Charles Manson. <laughs> He was fast asleep right next to him, looking so peaceful. Yeah, he's just like he's dreaming like a little dog. Because <laughs> this is the time, like this is that summer, that magical summer when uh, Charles Manson was an aspiring singer-songwriter. Right. And he was a guy that was just sleeping at Dennis Wilson's house because he brought the ladies. And Dennis Wilson was high enough to think that maybe this guy has some talent. And you know what? He did have no. talent. He did no. have some songwriting talent. If he wasn't Charles, if he wasn't such a crazy fuck, I guarantee you Charles Manson would have been uh, at the very least a mid-level songwriter in the late 1960s. But that's a conversation for another time and it's an argument I will make until the day I die and defend it with all the fucking power that I have. Rob, cut that out. Okay, and we're back. And we're back. I mean, I, listen, listen. Home is where you're happy is a fantastic song. I'm sorry. I'm going to say it's a so, good song. It's a good enough song to listen to all the way through. <laughs> you put that on the back of the DVD. Okay. Okay. okay back to Alex Jones. <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
So that was Alex Chilton's life, right? Mm -hmm. Sitting there ranting about Charles Manson at an IHOP with coffee at 2 a.m. next to Marcus Parks. No, no. That was his life. Alex Chilton, he was in the box tops until it only took a few years until uh, they fizzled out. You know, the hits stopped coming. Uh, Alex was bored anyways. He wanted to flex his own creative muscles and write and record his own songs. And so when he got together with an old buddy named Chris Bell, they started playing together and bringing in songs and, and realizing this is great stuff. Let's start a band called, um, uh, what's the name of that grocery store? Uh, the one across the street? Uh, Big Star Groceries? Yeah, let's call it that. Big Star Groceries? <laughs> no, damn it, we're, we're both high. Let's call it Big Star. And that led to three great albums. Fantastic albums, by the way. All of them great in their own way with fantastic songs. Oh, yeah. And I will I will yell that all, all night long, including oh. this one. Oh, what a brave sense, Carolina. Oh, Big Star's good. Don't kick my crate. <laughs> including this one amazing song that you happen to love. One of our favorites, The Ballad of El Gudo. This is my favorite Big Star song. It's fantastic. <laughs> Years ago my heart was set to live Oh I've been trying hard against unbelievable odds It gets so hard in times like now to hold on the way to be stuck by at my side is God and there ain't no And uh, of course, the Big Star albums were all recorded at Arden Studios in Memphis, Tennessee. And that song, uh, The Ballad of El Gudo, like inspired by the Beach Boys, as you can tell. You can hear it. Yeah. All the harmonies. Well, it's, just, it's better than any song the Beach Boys ever wrote, if you want to oh, get Oh, God. But. Okay. Another one. All right. Let's all just got, get in line. Just take a microphone. It's some fucking hot take Tuesday over here. <laughs> but that's true. Actually, you know, many moons ago, I, I, it was a couple of years ago when we did the Cramps uh, series and we talked about Alex Chilton. Mm -hmm. uh, I do remember us. Or especially you saying especially me. they were a little bit overrated. And now you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, that's not true. Yeah. Oh, look at me. <laughs> Take a big stand. I actually find them, uh, the big star, Alex Chilton, underrated. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's quite possible. I, my opinion on Big Star has definitely evolved because I think I did have some sort of uh, idea that like, man, like, yeah, all these fucking record store nerds like Big Star. So I'm going to have like the opinion that like Big Star is kind of overrated. <laughs> and that's the thing is that now I think the prevailing opinion is that Big Star is overrated. So if you really want to be contrary and say that Big Star is underrated. So take that to your fucking record store <laughs> and see and try it out. See how it fucking goes on. <laughs> Everyone's brains exploded. <laughs> now, when it comes to the influence of Alex Chilton and Big Star, there are few artists that had a bigger impact on a certain subset of alternative groups and singers, particularly those slow and low vibers who straddled the line between sensitivity and cynicism. While Big Star was first and foremost a rock band who should have been legends in their own time, Alt and indie giants like R.E.M. and Elliot Smith worship Big Star, and one can make the argument that Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, one of the best albums of this century so far, 
wouldn't have existed without Big Star. Just listen to Holocaust off of Big Star 3rd and make that fucking try to tell me it ain't the same fucking thing. And as it was, The Replacements certainly wouldn't have been quite the band that they were had it not been for Peter Jesperson's Big Star records that were played for Paul Westerberg during the band's early days. Absolutely. And all all three big star records. Mm-hmm. And and going back to Alex Chilton, by the time he was in his mid twenties, he was drinking way too much and doing lots of drugs. His personal and professional relationships suffered or were just broken by this point. And it even reflected on many of the songs Alex wrote in that time period. It's songs that would become Big Star's third and last record titled Third. Third, yeah. Or Sister Lovers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but record labels didn't want to touch the album. Like, they didn't even want to distribute it at all because it was a bit unconventional for their taste. Well, and there was also the whole thing between Ardent Records and Stax Records, which is a whole story unto itself that we might do on an extra play here in the future. Because it, fascin- it is a fascinating story of, like, how Big Star, not necessarily how Big Star failed, but how the record industry failed Big Star. So badly. And, and how the IRS came in at the worst time ever. <laughs> Let's just say bad timing. Real bad, bad timing. Bad timing. They, they got a big cabinet uh, that just says stacks on it. <laughs> <laughs> Not one folder. <laughs> anyway, so Big Star's third wasn't released until four years later, 1978. Yeah. And, you know, obviously Big Star had fizzled out. Big Star was pretty much Alex Chilton at this point anyways. Yeah, after Chris Bell had left and gone crazy and then, you know, died. He died in a, in a one-man accident that we don't know what happened. Man, we won't let you know about that either. Let's move on. It's just a sad, tragic kind of life and a sad, tragic kind of of adulthood as well as as, as everything's going on. And somehow, somewhere in the 80s, Alex kind of slowly started getting out of that because he decided to sober up and move to New Orleans and work a steady job as a dishwasher in a restaurant, then later a janitor and a tree trimmer. And he was maybe trying to gain a normal life back. Well, that was the thing that everyone said about Alex Chilton is that he is the only man uh, in existence to move to New Orleans to sober up. Yes, (laughs) to be normal. (laughs) Yeah, to be normal and sober up. And he did it. He did it. Exactly. But you know what? Music was still in his blood. So he slowly started playing again, putting together a little band and gearing up to do shows all over. And so he found a booking agent, Frank Riley, who was also the replacements booking agent. Yep. So Frank called up Peter Jesperson and said, you're not going to believe who I just signed. And Peter's like, who? All right. Here's a hint. Give me a ticket for an airplane. What? Ah, I can't believe it's Alex Chilton. Can we get him on the bill with the replacements? Sure. Yeah. Okay. How about that December 9th show at CBGB's? That big time record label showcase? Sure. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> they said yeah. to each other and chuckled. So Alex Chilton, he opened for them that Sunday night and he did a great set. He played some of his solo stuff, some covers too, a Carol King song, and, and also, of course, a couple of big star songs from the old days. And he killed it. And the replacements, they were right there, front and center, enjoying the shit out of his set. They were having so much fun, they nearly forgot, oh, we have to go on next. You know, They they were finishing like their seventh glass of whiskey (laughs) at this point. Yeah, I don't think nearly is the word you should be using. I I think you should take the word nearly out of that sentence (laughs) altogether. They forgot because they are so excited about seeing Alex Chilton. It's such a huge deal for them. And it's uh, it's the thing with the replacements. All right, okay. (laughs) Here's Here's the thing. They're there to uh, entertain and mostly be entertained. It's part of the magic. We're all in on it. And to remind you again, this is a major label showcase. And they're more concerned with seeing the Alex Chilton show 
than playing the replacement show. And with the replacements, it's hard to say exactly why they did the things they did. While they were certainly quite adept at self-sabotage, I think it's unfair to say that they always sabotage themselves on purpose. To compare it to a practical situation, they didn't always pour sugar into the gas tank of their own car on purpose, although sometimes they did do exactly that. More often, it was more like they'd put oil where the windshield wiper fluid was supposed to go because they were too distracted or drunk to know the difference, or because they thought it was funny to do something so obviously stupid. (laughs) That one checks out. (laughs) The problem is that they did it without thinking that maybe having oil all over the windshield might make driving a lot more difficult than it needed to be. And they did it without thinking that they might permanently fuck up the car in the process. Case in point was the CBGB label showcase of December 1984. Executives from Columbia, Warner Brothers, Chrysalis, A&M, and more came that night to see the replacements, who were playing under the marquee name of Gary and the Boners because they had another gig at Irving Plaza a few days later. It was a non-compete clause kind of thing. Yeah, and of course, Gary and the Boners is a reference to the old replacement song, Gary's Got a Boner. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. And the name, as it was would prove apt for the night to come. Now, to give you the full scope of what a disaster this show was, the replacements weren't quite as drunk as they'd ever be on stage, (laughs) but they were drunk enough where they played 43 songs by the end of the night. And I put songs in quotations. Yeah, because I don't know if they were all finished. Snippets is a word that's been used. Yeah, and only a handful of those 43 songs and snippets were replacement songs, and only... One or two of those replacement songs were the actual album versions. <laughs> what are we here for? Again? I had this weird dream that we were at this record label showcase. It was crazy. It's, it's fucking nuts, bro. It's fucking nuts. He wakes up and their names are on the marquee. Ah, my name's Gary now. Well, included amongst mostly snippets of half remembered covers were I Got You, Babe. The themes to Green Acres and Gilligan's Island and the worst version of Walk on the Wild Side ever done, heard here on an old bootleg cassette of the show in which it's not even Paul Westerberg singing, it's the roadie. Yeah, he's great too. No, the joke's always really on the replacements. <laughs> it really is. Even about- though they're the ones slinging it themselves. And by the way, that's not like towards the end of the show or like, yeah, let's. Uh, that is 15 minutes in. Yes. <laughs> you can hear the smattering of applause dissipate after a while and yeah. only the drunk ones stay, yeah. stay at the, till the very bitter end. Yeah. And other times during the show, the replacements sing the lyrics to their own songs, but set them to the tune of covers. Like when they tip their hat to Alex Chilton by playing September Girls by Big star, but sang the lyrics to their own song, Customer. We know those lyrics. (laughs) 
I swear to God, I've never believed in a term of a evil twin more <laughs> than just now, this moment, right now. <laughs> they do exist. <laughs> they very much do exist. <laughs> as far as why they played this set, when they knew full well that their professional futures were at stake. I think the liner notes written by Paul himself for the aforementioned Shit Hits the Fans live album might partially answer the question. He wrote, quote, Ever wanted to be popular? The life of the party? Just plain liked even? Well, we did. And now that that absurd dream seems within reach, we've come to the sobering realization that we don't fucking know how to pull it off. People come to see us and what do we do? What we want? Play covers, basically wing it and embarrass a lot of people in the process. A dunce cap never fits so well. For worse or worser, it's us. And without that stuff, we die a dull death. <laughs> <laughs> it always comes out like a kids in a hall sketch. <laughs> and and then like cue to us like ice fishing right now. <laughs> okay, I know I mean to make fun of the Minnesota accent too much. I probably did a terrible Minnesota accent. Uh, but <laughs> they spit out their cigars. <laughs> all of them at this moment. But it really does tell you how they thought it. And those liner notes were written before the CBGB show. Like like this is just that was the attitude of the replacements is that we're just going to do it because we want to do it and we're doing it for us uh and if we don't do it for us at every point then what's the fucking point uh and the unfortunate thing about that is living life like that means that things don't always work out yeah and like you said the show was a disaster the label executives the a r people they started leaving the show once they realized it was a shitty drunken display peter desperson he just had no choice but to just keep watching this train wreck mm -hmm. he felt humiliated it was a huge blow to all his efforts for the band but at least he got to meet alex chilton because <laughs> remember peter's a big fan he saw him at the end of the night when he went to hilly to get paid for the show he saw alex behind him also wanting to get paid for the show mm -hmm. alex chilton even though he was a big overnight success like many years before didn't fare so well much no, later no, as we said no um, <laughs> not at all legendary status does not equal money uh, yes and, and that is the case in, and especially in the arts yeah, that we are in very much in the arts and yeah. so because alex chilton wasn't doing so well financially at that time and peter knew this he went up to Alex and like, said, hey, can I buy you breakfast tomorrow? Like, <laughs> It was really more like I want to meet my hero. Yeah. But it did definitely come out with like, hey, you hungry? <laughs> Do you need some, you need a meal, buddy? You need some help? You and win? Alex said, yeah, that'll be fine. Without a moment of hesitation. Great. Yeah. Let's go. Let's do it tomorrow. Breakfast. Yeah. Now, the next day. Paul Westerberg was predictably hungover, but when Peter Jesperson woke him up and told him he was about to go have a midday meal with Alex Chilton at an Indian lunch buffet, Westerberg jumped out of bed and tagged along. That was breakfast. Yeah. Lunch. Well, yeah. actually, lunch, that is bre breakfast is lunch. Yeah, breakfast is lunch for these dudes, yeah. <laughs> By the time... Westerberg and Jesperson met up with Alex Chilton in the East Village outside of the late great Jim Spa Egg Cream Bodega, R.I.P. Jim Spa. Chilton mm -hmm. was doing his best Alex Chilton act, standing by the garbage can, playing with matches, checking his stash by the trash, as it were. Now, lunch was going okay, but when Paul went to the bathroom halfway through, Chilton leaned over to Jesperson and said... Man, I thought those guys were real cool last night. <laughs> I'd love to work with them in the studio sometime. And Peter said, really? <laughs> hey, Peter, can I tell you a secret? I loved it. Really? <laughs> really? 
wonderful. Oh my god, they're the best band I've ever seen in my life. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> it's not the major label saying, yeah, let's sign these guys, but it's a hell of a consolation. It's a hungry, a literal starving artist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really, it, I mean, it's crazy the way that happened because I remember when I was uh, 16, you know, I just happened to be like uh, in Austin, you know, my dad took me around to a bunch of different music venues. Uh, we ended up going to Emos, the old Emos on Red River. And, you know, who was playing there that night but fucking Daniel Johnston because yeah, it's Austin. Cool. It's 1998, 99 or something like that. And after the show, I just went up and talked to Daniel Johnston, one of the legendary, one of the greatest songwriters of all time, outsider songwriters of all time. And he's just sitting there selling his Danny and the Monster CD. Oh, and you just And he's just sitting over there and you're, and at the time I had no idea who he was. But yeah, these legends, these guys like Alex Chilton and Daniel Johnston, like, yeah, they want you to buy them breakfast. That's awesome. Like, hey, like R.I.P. R.I.P. to R both of them. R.I.P. to both. Now, to explain the mystery of why Alex Chilton loved the replacement so much at this CBGB show. Peter Jesperson wants to know. <laughs> one must look no further than Alex Chilton's first solo record after Big Star, Like Flies on Sherbert, in which Chilton consciously made the choice to leave in false starts, musical errors, and sloppy musicianship, much like the replacements had on their past recordings. Because it's got tons of magic. Yeah, it's got that magic. It's got that authenticity, that fucking rock and roll. For an example, example, here's Chilton's version of Boogie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine Band, which was, by the way, the lead-off track to the album in the British release of this record. It's a Memphis version of Boogie Shoes. What's not to like? Yeah, what's not to like about that? But since Chilton's <laughs> taste ran in this direction, and since he could still listen to four replacements records, including Let It Be, to see how good the band really was, Chilton told Peter Jesperson that he'd love to work with the band in the studio one day. And when Jesperson realized that Alex Chilton was serious, he ran to the nearest phone, called Steve Felstad in Minneapolis, and booked a week of studio time for the next month. He told Steve Felstad, I need the studio for a few days for the replacements, and I'm bringing in a new producer. You're not going to believe who. And Steve's like, who? He's like, give me a ticket for an airplane. <laughs> and Steve Felstad gasped. He gasped. He's like, nuh -uh. Yeah, huh? It was it was a whole thing. Yeah, it was a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Yeah, that's that's just the bit just keeps going on and on and on, doesn't it? <laughs> Thank you. But before that session was to happen, the replacement still had another show in New York City after the CBGB show. The CBGB show, that was a label showcase. Their real show 
as the replacements was at Irving Plaza, and not a single person on their team or in the audience knew what they were going to get when the replacements took the stage that night. And guess what? It was amazing. It was amazing. It, it was, was magnificent. <laughs> it, was, it went better than anyone could have hoped for. They nailed every song, every guitar, like everything. They turned out one of the best live performances of their career. <laughs> and Peter Jesperson, he was so proud, so proud of his boys. Oh, yeah. He was just blown away by how great they sounded. Holy buckets. What a show. <laughs> Holy buckets. And all the replacements had to do was not know that there was a record label executive in the audience. Because <laughs> there was. And that's the thing. If you tell them it's important, then they'll blow it. Yes. And it's lucky that they didn't know that the co-founder and CEO of Sire Records, Seymour Stein himself, was at that show that night. Mm -hmm. And what's more, Seymour wanted to offer them a record label contract right away. Immediately. He loved them. Seymour Stein. He's the guy who signed the Talking Heads, the Dead Boys, Richard Hell, Madonna, the Smiths. The list goes on and on. The Ramones. Of course the Ramones. (laughs) It was his wife, Linda Stein, who went with Danny Fields to CBGB's and saw how amazingly rocking the Ramones were. And the next day, she got Seymour out of bed because he had the flu and had him sit in at the Ramones rehearsal the next day to see for himself. And he was knocked sideways by their energy. What is this? A hard rock parody of the early 60s bubblegum music? Why is everything only a minute long? (laughs) Who cares? This is something new and exciting and he had to get in on it. You see, that's Seymour's thing. He had a great ear for what people might call unconventional music. Mm -hmm. But really, it's just something fresh from older and cooler influences. Yeah. And when he likes what he hears, he's got to have it. And that's what happened when Seymour saw the replacements that night at Irving Plaza. Seymour Stein, he just walked backstage. He congratulated the band on the great show, asked them if they wanted to join Sire Records. And the guys were like, yes, (laughs) definitely. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Sire was the best place for them. Because Sire, it started out as an independent record label that Seymour later sold to Warner Brothers with the understanding that Sire continued doing their thing, discovering new and exciting bands, signing them and developing them, doing everything on the creative side themselves. And then all Warner Brothers had to do was just finance it, distribute and promote their product under a major label banner. I mean, it's almost too good to be true. (laughs) What, again... What could possibly go wrong? So the replacements, they eagerly signed with Sire Records, although Paul Westerberg and Chris Mars signed each other's names on the contract because they figured if it all goes wrong, they can swear on their lives that that wasn't their signature on the contract (laughs) as a just-in-case, but they were so happy. They were so amped. Fucking dumb shits. (laughs) (laughs) But like, if you sign your name and, I, and, and if, you, if you sign my name and I sign your name, then like, if it sucks, we can just be like, "Fuck you, bro," and then like, we don't have to fucking do it. Fuck yeah, bro! You're like, you're so smart. I, I, I'm so glad we're friends. I'm so glad we're in a band together. That's the Beavis and Butt idea. If it pleases the court, I'd like to show that these are not their signatures, and it's Beavis and Butt wearing shorts. Of course. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So with the New York shows behind them and a major label record deal in the works, the replacements honored the handshake commitment made at the Indian Lunch Buffet and entered the studio in January of 1986 to cut demos with Alex Chilton. Now, even though Chilton had been playing music off and on since leaving Big Star, he only had a small handful of serious production credits when he went into the studio with the replacements. Apart from a baffling Christmas single with New York Jangle Poppers, the DBs, the last time Chilton had produced anyone but himself was six years earlier in 1980, in Ardent Studios in Memphis, no less, when he took the helm for the album Songs the Lord Taught Us by The Cramps. Yes! Chilton produced most of that album with his feet. Yes, yes, he was, yeah. it, because he was mixing drinks with his hands. <laughs> now, as far as where these demos with the replacements were recorded, Twin Tone Records have been growing as a label, so they bought their own combination recording studio slash office space in late 1984. Interestingly, they shared that space with Husker Du, who needed office space themselves to run their own fledgling record label. They just put their names next to the mailboxes together. <laughs> it's cute. It, Peter, there's mail for Bob. <laughs> there's mail for Grant. <laughs> <laughs> we need a copy for Greg. <laughs> the space itself was Nicolette Studios, which was an old theater haunted by a vaudeville piano player. Like almost every fucking theater in this goddamn country is haunted by a vaudeville piano player. <laughs> Trust me, I've played so many theaters across this fucking country with last podcast, and Every single one, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, there's a vaudeville player that haunts the rafters here at night. Where are all these vaudeville players, <laughs> fucking piano players? Don't why why are they all work. dying at the theater? Stop dying at work. <laughs> <laughs> However, Twin Tone wasn't the first record label to call this building home. Back in the early 60s, Nicolette had been home to Soma Records, who had recorded perhaps the most famous Minneapolis single in history until Purple Rain. That's right, kids. Nicolette had been the birthplace of your favorite and mine, Surf Rock's <laughs> number one hit by a band who'd never seen the ocean. Here's the Trashman with Surfing Bird! When everybody's heard about the bird. Bird, bird, bird. Bird's a winner, well, a bird, bird, bird. Bird is a winner, well, a bird, bird, bird. Well, a bird is a winner, well, a bird, bird, bird. Bird's a winner, well, a bird, bird, bird. Well, a bird is a winner, well, a bird, bird. Bird's a winner, well, a bird, bird, bird. Bird's a winner, well, a bird, bird, bird. Well, a bird is a winner, well, a bird, bird, bird. 
You know, they recorded that single uh, when it was called K-Bank Studios, September 1963, released November 13th, 1963, sold 38,000 copies in the first week. That's crazy. Let it be sold 11,000 copies in the first few months. <laughs> so yeah, it was gigantic. Plus, Soma Records were also massive distributors. Yeah. So that worked. Yeah. And did you... Fucking people really think that we were going to do an entire series about Minneapolis and we weren't going to play or mention Surfing Bird once. I know. We did a whole episode about it. <laughs> we did. Yeah. If you want to know the entire history of Surfing Bird, go check out our Surfing Bird episode. Yeah. Big, big thing for Minneapolis. Huge for for And then and then the president died. <laughs> And, and then the Beatles came, and, and then Minneapolis was swallowed up for 20 years, like Pennywise. So over the course of four days, Alex Chilton put down three replacements tracks with Steve Felstad. And while most of the recordings would take decades to see the light of day, one recording would make its way to the next replacements album as one of their most enduring songs. With this song... Paul Westerberg wrote an ode to college radio stations, which, if you didn't know, always sits somewhere on the left of the FM public band between 93.9 and 88.1. And mm. as our station was KTXT 88.1. I our love it when you do it. I love it. <laughs> KTXT. Our tagline was keep it locked to the left, which I'm sure was and still is pretty common in the college radio game. I don't think we were the only ones to use keep it locked to the left. But this song that we're talking about was the perfect anthem for college radio kids like myself who felt, to use a modern term, seen by Paul Westerberg. Yeah. Now, it is ironic that The Replacements wrote arguably the most popular college radio anthem in history, considering how none of The Replacements even had high school diplomas. But even so, colleges everywhere loved Left of the Dial. It's so epic. It's got its own epicy. <laughs> There's no word for that, is it? Uh, it's got gravitas might be the word that you're looking for. It's uh, got... I don't I don't speak Latin. <laughs> anyway, like you <laughs> Yes, yes. English second language. Like, yes. like you said, it's a tribute. You know, left of the dial is a tribute to college radio stations everywhere. But it's also a love song about a woman Paul Westerberg knew. Mm -hmm. She was a guitarist for a band called Let's Active, and both bands played together before. And, well, you know, Paul was very smitten with her. Mm -hmm. And actually, he once heard her on the radio one night while he was just riding in the van. She was being interviewed about something about her band. And Paul just happened to turn to that dial to listen to her voice. And he was just mesmerized by it. And just the chance also by hearing it randomly. He, he loved that whole magic of it. Yeah, that's the magic of radio. 
And Paul, you, you know what? He was usually the one manning the radio in the tour van. Like Peter said, he was always turning that dial, looking for that one song and maybe even trying to find a replacement song to hear himself on the radio and be like, I wrote that song. Yeah. And now everyone else gets to listen to it, too. I mean, that that'd be pretty cool. It's such a good feeling. Like I got to feel that once in my uh, in the college. When I was in college, our college band got played on the college radio station that I worked for. Maybe it was cheating a little bit, but <laughs> but, <laughs> but you still had that yeah. magical feeling. Say, yeah, yeah. There was a, a lo- there was a, a show that played like all local music, and so when we recorded something, and you know, they, and they actually played it on the show, like the whole band, we were there at my apartment, and like I think they're gonna play it tonight. They're gonna play it tonight. And then when they played it, like we all went fucking nuts. Oh, even though man, even though I'm going nuts now. <laughs> That's so great because that's the magic of radio. Because even though you, we could put uh, that we could put our CD on at any time and listen to it, the fact that someone else chose to play it and knowing that there were you know hundreds, if not thousands, of other people. Okay, let's be honest, hundreds of other people, maybe dozens, but still. <laughs> hey, don't listen, tell yourself short. Yeah, listening to this, I know what our listener numbers were. Uh, like it, it, it makes as a, a musician or creative person, like it, it just there's no feeling that that compares to you know like it, it really does make you feel very very special it really does yeah so i, I get what he's talking about yeah no i understand no, that i get too. what he was looking I for mean, at least we're on a podcast <laughs> we totally understand what that means i've been in this re- i've been in this business <laughs> now on 21 year now <laughs> <laughs> all right oh wait the replacements they have to start a new record remember yeah, they, they, they signed a deal with sire records okay all right so let's get started all we need now is a producer what about Alex Chilton? Uh, and the replacement said, nah, he's weird. <laughs> that's what the guy said. Well, that's what Paul, Tommy, and Chris said. They said, that dude's a genius, but man, he's real weird. And only Bob was like, what do you mean? Yeah. He's just a normal guy, just like the rest of us, like eating chips. And everyone looking at Bob was like, what? Really? And Bob's like, uh-huh, crunch, crunch. <laughs> Makes you wonder which one's the weird one. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, but Bob did work well with Alex Chilton. And we'll we'll get to Bob's collaboration in that session on the next episode. Absolutely. Anyway, so the record label, they weren't keen on having Alex Chilton produce it anyway, but they did suggest someone good. Someone who knew how to put up with sensitive but tough and wild personalities. And that was Tommy Erderly, also known as Tommy Ramone. One, two, three, four. Definitely a better vocal performance than fucking mashed potato time. No, if you ask the that Af- was the Ramones, by the way. That was the Ramones. <laughs> the Ramones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was one of the, the few songs actually sung by Dee Ramone, who of course uh, did Mashed Potato Time by uh, Dee Dee King. Was it Mashed Potato Time? Oh yeah, was yeah. it? Yeah, but yeah, the Dee Dee King song. Yeah, yeah. 
I did it remote. Yeah. Bo, 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 bo. I'm never going to get over it. Man. That's funky, oh, man. Oh, no, now you did it. Oh, no. Now, now, now the whole place stinks now. Great. We got to clear and open up all the windows. You're going to have to burn some sage later. Now, if you ask the average rock fan where they know the name Tommy Ramone, they'll say he's a drummer. But if he had asked Tommy Erdely himself, he would have undoubtedly referred to himself first and foremost as a producer. So the only reason why Tommy Erdely played drums for the Ramones in the first place was because the band needed someone to replace Joey Ramone after Joey became the front man. Because remember, he kept falling downstairs and falling off the seat and he just couldn't fucking get it together. And in fact... Tommy never played drums seriously in a band ever again after he left the Ramones in 1978. See, before he produced the first four Ramones records, before the Ramones were even a thing, Tommy Erdely had worked at a string of New York City recording studios, including the legendary record plant where, in 1969, Tommy actually worked with Jimi Hendrix. That's how long he'd been in the game. But when the New York Dolls debuted in Manhattan in the early 70s, paving the way for New York punk and changing rock and roll forever, Tommy saw that the way forward was to go backward, from the bloated technical proficiency of 70s FM rock to the primal instincts that created the genre. Keep it simple. Yeah. So Tommy put together a few of his old friends from Forest Hills and Queens who he believed could tap into that primal element. The biggest idiots he knew would go (laughs) along with whatever scheme he had. Yes, them. That band was, of course, the Ramones. But after four years of drumming, Tommy decided to return to the world of producing, where he stayed for the rest of his life. Concerning his work with the replacements, though, once the band had gotten pretty far into the recording process with Tommy Erdely, they realized that Tommy wasn't actually the Ramones producer they thought he was. Or not that they what they wanted. The replacements realized they probably actually wanted Ed Stasium, who was co-producer on the Ramones album Road to Ruin, an engineer on Rocket to Russia and Leave Home, <laughs> as well as co-producer on Too Tough to Die. But by then, it was too late to say anything. Ed Stasium is an angel. <laughs> Every Christmas, we put a claymation of, or whatever of Ed Stasium on the top of our tree. <laughs> He's a god to us. He really is. He's just a, he's an angel of a man. He's a treasure. Yes, he really is. Now, Tommy Erdely had a little bit of heat in the rock critic world in 1985 because he just co-produced the so-called last great Ramones record, Too Tough to Die, with Ed Stasium. As far as how Tommy got into the replacements, he'd first heard about them after reading their Village Voice cover story, and he'd been at the disastrous CBGB show the previous December. In other words, he was about as prepared as anyone could be as to what he was getting into with the replacements. And considering how he'd wrangled Joey, Johnny, and Dee Dee in the studio for no less than five albums, he was used to dealing with, let's call them difficult people. <laughs> yes, yes. How hard could it be? How hard could it be? So when Sire Records called Tommy up and offered him the job as producer for the next replacements album, Early accepted, which satisfied the replacements as well because they wanted someone with punk cred that they felt they could trust with their first major label release. So Tommy Erdley was flown out to Minneapolis, and after connecting with the band right away, they all went into the studio and recorded two demo versions of songs that would both end up on the replacements' upcoming album, Little Mascara and Kiss Me on the Bus.
Tommy Ramone, he connected real well with the band. Oh, so you're not going to do the kiss me on the butt thing? Okay, so, <laughs> so according to Bob Simpson, the original, the original working title was Kiss Me on the Butt. Yes, it was. And and then I, I thought and it was so just, funny. You just think it's the funniest fucking thing that you've ever heard in your life. And, and then you made me cut it out. <laughs> Like, like actually cut it out of the show, and then you're bringing it up now, because, now because you mentioned it. We just took a break, and you mentioned it like three times while we were breaking. I was just saying, like you know, it's it's not easy to write to come up with these jokes. <laughs> okay, I get a salary for this somehow. All right, so so Tommy Ramone connected with the band real well, and yeah. with Peter Jesperson. So that whole thing when I said like, oh, like how could it be? that hard all that business actually it was not hard at all no. for Tommy Ramone he, get, he was very good at this you get the right producer that knows how to manipulate a bunch of assholes and you get a great fucking album absolutely and so and, and Tommy and Peter Jesperson they connected real they got real close too they worked out the recording schedule what they're going to need for the next few weeks all that kind of stuff and becoming good friends in the process and so they were all hanging out the night before their first recording session they all got together at Peter's apartment for like some drinks and listening to music and fun hangout stuff and it was in the middle of that night that Paul got up in front of everyone and said to Peter, hey, listen, about tomorrow, we'd prefer it if you didn't come in with us you know, while we work on the record. That's fucking rough. That's a big fucking deal for Peter Jesperson. It's huge. It was quite a weird pregnant pause, <laughs> let's just say. Everyone was just kind of quiet about it, uh, except that Chris Mars kind of piped in with a, yeah, you see, it's a creative thing. Maybe I just want to be a little spontaneous and I really can't do it when you're around. Yeah, because it's not just a professional thing. It's a personal thing, too. Like, they're friends, they're co-workers, and they're friends. And so, father figures yeah. and all that kind of <laughs> Babysitter, business. Babysitter, it's everything. It's a lot of things, yes. And, and Peter... Peter was shocked. I mean, he, he he was he was fine with it. He respected their wishes, but he was still pretty hurt. I mean, how could he not be? Yeah. Up until then, he'd always been a part of everything of the replacements, everything that ev they have ever done, especially in the recording process of on all four of their albums, not to mention driving them to and from the studio, handing out their per diems, grabbing coffee, whatever. And the guys were like, oh, no, no, no we, we still want you to do that. <laughs> yes, yes, you're, you're going to have to drop by for that. But yeah. that's it. You can't come in. Yeah, yeah. And please, coffee. Beer. I really mean, I mean, yes, the beer for, bre beer for breakfast. Beer for breakfast, actually. Yeah. Now, even though the feeling was certainly different in the studio without the presence of Peter Jesperson, maybe they were on to something because the replacements managed to record one of their best albums, quite possibly the high point of their career. That album was Tim.
that song, Hold My Life, it's an appropriate opener for the album for a couple of different reasons. Like a lot of older replacements tracks, the lyrics to Hold My Life were written about a week before recording, as is evidenced by such stanzas as, well, 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 anyone could tell, classic ah, a lucky shot, ooly do. <laughs> that sounds like you're you're doing like a Jeopardy question or something. <laughs> what are the replacements? They were actually on Jeopardy once, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Yeah. yeah. But in true Paul Westerberg fashion, there was still genius contained within. The repeated line in the chorus, hold my life until I'm ready to use it, hold my life because I just might lose it. That wasn't a bad read on the life of guitarist Bob Stinson at the time, nor for that matter, a bad read on the life of any member of The Replacements. Yes, remember, they're all drunken idiots. Yeah. I mean, they're talented, they're brilliant, they're complicated individuals with their own unique abilities and depth, but yes, they're also drunken idiots. <laughs> but the one suffering the most, and especially at this time, was Bob Stinson. Yeah. As we said in the previous episode, Bob wasn't able to get a handle on his drinking and drug use, and, and, and it continued to ramp up even worse than ever, especially at this point. It was clear that he was dealing with really bad mental issues. Very much so. Plus, he'd also been separating himself from the band for a while, at least socially. He'd keep to himself or hang out with other friends. He kept his day job at Mama Rosa's. Mm -hmm. He was not going to quit that. I think it's because he got just so super overwhelmed by everything, with how complicated the band got to be, signing with a major label and everything. And, and now it's happening creatively in the studio. His guitar playing wasn't fitting in with these new songs that they were working on. And as the band progressed and figured out things in the studio, Bob, he seemed to either not be interested or not know how to do something different, or sometimes he was just too drunk. Yeah. So he didn't bother to show up. Like, he didn't come to most of the recording of Tim. Tommy Erdely, he he remembers that that Bob was there like maybe one day. Yeah. And that was just to do all his solos. So Bob did the guitar solos for many of the songs, but that was it. Like, he was totally checked out. And the band, they'd moved on too. Like, maybe before they signed with Sire, they would have waited for Bob to show up or for him to get better in some way. But but, but there was a new future in sight, and they wanted to go for this. At this point, it's like it was. this was something that, that you told me that, you know, I thought was a really good parallel. It's like you could really compare it to, like, Joy Division, you know, where, like, Ian Curtis obviously could not handle the pace that the band was going at, uh, and, but the band didn't slow down at all. They didn't wait for him. And if they would have waited for him, Maybe Ian Curtis, what, maybe things would have worked out differently. Yeah, maybe it might have yeah. been different. It's yeah. really hard to. I wouldn't say to, like. Yeah, e we don't I want mean, to put that on a bunch of twenty-year-old kids. Of course not. No. You know, and Ian Curtis, of course, had his own mental problems that he was dealing he, with at the time. You know, we talked away about, by suicide. Yeah, yes. he passed away by suicide. Yeah, but it's but it was really more about like I'm talking more about the health problems where you know it was about like Ian Curtis's. Um, Seizures, you yes. know, is epilepsy. You know, the band never slowed down for that. And the replacements never slowed down for Bob Stinson's mental health issues, which were myriad and only getting worse. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, you know, it's, a, it's not hard to say this, but this is also, I, I would say fair to say this was in 1985. Yes. Which back then, and especially with these younger guys uh, coming in, they're, they're seeing some, something that might not be like a serious mental problem as... Instead, they're just seeing this as a, this guy's just being a dick. Yeah. And it's also, you know, 1985, it's also the Midwest and the Midwesterners, especially at this time, are not the best at addressing feelings. No, I got my therapy right here in my two hands <laughs> and one on deck. Yes. So a lot of times that's what we talk about a lot. Yeah. You know, a lot of times addressing mental health is something that I, 
I believe it took the replacements a lifetime to get to. It really did. Now, even though Peter Jesperson wasn't allowed in the studio, as we said, for the most part during the sessions, he was still in contact with producer Tommy Erdely because they'd expected to work together during the entirety of the album recording. But since Peter Jesperson was still an obvious part of the team, and since he was also, first and foremost, a replacements fan, Tommy would call Peter when the band produced something new in the studio. And one night, Tommy called Peter over to his hotel to listen to one of those new tracks. That song... Kiss me in the butt. <laughs> it, waitress in the sky. It was waitress in the sky. Oh, okay. <laughs> she don't wear no pants. She don't wear no tie. Always on the ball. She's always on strike. Strutting up the aisle. Big deal, you get to fly. You ain't nothing but a waitress in the sky. You ain't nothing but a waitress in the sky. some point to Waitress in the Sky is proof positive that Paul Westerberg is in fact a massive dickhead. No, you're looking at the wrong place. <laughs> but, you know, he's wonderful. He's tender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, you know, but yes, he's been known to be an asshole. Yeah, the evidence is there. It's just not here. Paul said that this song has been misunderstood from day one. Granted, it does sound like Paul is going off on a screed about how flight attendants ain't shit, but it's actually a character song written from the perspective of a shitty passenger based on Paul's sister's experiences as an actual flight attendant. He's playing a character. Oh. In fact, the phrase waitress in the sky comes from Paul's sister herself because that was what she said she was made to feel like flight after flight. I'm just a waitress in, a, in the fucking sky to these people. Wow, what a regular Hubert Selby here. <laughs> <laughs> but tongue-in-cheek tracks aside, there's one song in particular that is, to put it mildly, absolutely devastating. One of the most touching and brutally authentic songs of the entire decade. And it would never have seen the light of day if not for Peter Jesperson. Yeah, because after some time, Peter was finally allowed back in the studio, or they might have forgotten that rule. <laughs> Whichever. Oh, but hey, Peter's here. Cool. <laughs> and Peter, where, where, where have you been? <laughs> I know. And Peter Jesperson, like you said, the ever so devoted fan of the replacements, and especially of Paul Westerberg's songwriting. Yeah. Because remember, Paul Westerberg used to give him all these tapes that 
that he would write by himself in his parents' basement and hand it to Peter. He always wanted to hear what Peter had to say about this. Not even hand it to Peter. Like, remember, he'd like leave the tape, like push the tapes through the mail slot and then scurry away. Yeah, it was like one of those things like, am I schizophrenic or something? Or is there a CIA man outside just handing me tapes? We don't know. Yeah, gang stalked by a singer songwriter. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, yes. So when Peter had heard from one of the record company guys that Paul had written a solo song and Peter didn't know about it, he made sure to bring it up. So the next time he was in the studio, he went up to Paul and said, so what's this about a solo song? And Paul looked at him and looked around. He was really nervous. And maybe it's because it was one of his secret songs, you know, that he wrote for himself or at least not for the replacements. Or maybe it's because it was a song about alcoholism and the fact that it was more self-aware than it had any right to be. (laughs) I mean, it was about drinking at the CC club night after night with nothing to do. Most bands don't have time to be bar regulars, but the replacements made the time. So Paul looked at Peter, then at Tommy Erderly, then at Steve Felstead, and then said, yeah, I do. Actually, I do have a song. And why don't we record it? So they set up the microphones while Paul and Peter, they grabbed the baffling foamy stuff and they propped it against the window to the control room so no one could see in. And then Paul sat down in the chair with his acoustic guitar and asked Peter to turn down the lights all the way on his way out the room. And in the darkness alone, and in one take, Paul recorded, Here Comes a Regular. Well, a person can work up a After a hard day of nothing much at all The summer's past, it's too late to cut the grass There ain't much to break anyway in the fall And sometimes I Replacements uh, on the documentary about basically about replacements fans. It's called uh, Color Me Obsessed. It's pretty good. It's worth watching if you're a fan. Uh, but George Wint is in that documentary. George Wint, of course, played Norm on Cheers. He's a huge replacements fan. Yeah. And they talk to him about Here Comes a Regular, and he's so bashful when he talks. But he's like, you know, like, 
I thought, you know, I, I know like the guys like probably like, didn't didn't watch Cheers or anything, but, you know, it's like and, you know, and later, you know, and I know that, you know, Paul Westerberg didn't, you know, like write the song about me. But, you know, I thought like maybe maybe I don't, I don't know, like in a, in a way that maybe it, it maybe it was like maybe about like <laughs> like about Norm or something. It's, it's a joke. It's jo- it's a joke. It's, it's, it's not. You know, it's, he's, he's, so, he's so he's so bashful about that it. That is true. And it is adorable. Like, I think there is a story where George went uh was backstage with the guys much, much later and everything. And he tried to, he was trying to open the fridge to find something to drink. And they're like, hey, there's no beer for you, George. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, without skipping a beat, out of beer, I'm out of here. <laughs> and he just walked out. Like, there goes, here go, here comes a legend, more like, huh? <laughs> no, well, here comes a regular, certainly a sad song. I wouldn't call it maudlin. Rather, it's honest and very Midwestern. In my reading, the refrain of Here Comes a Regular isn't a sad greeting, but more of an example of how cavalier Midwestern culture can be concerning serious alcoholism. (laughs) It's like, oh, watch out, here comes a regular now. Watch out, he's here again, ain't he? (laughs) I'm sorry, Minnesotans. I'm sorry that we're doing the accent from, I don't know, Duluth, maybe, or, or some of the cast members of Kids in the Hall. The accent is bad, but you know I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> and similarly, the answer to the call is another joke. Oh, him. Am I the only one here today? Oh, boy. All right, then. Well, it's four o'clock. Let's go for it. Time to clean my gun. <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, comes the moment of clarity with the next chorus, which is also a very Midwestern thing. There's a brilliance to that area of the world. Instead of, am I the only one here today? It's, am I the only one who feels ashamed? Now, this song, written so honestly that Paul said it scared him, was good enough where even Bob Stinson had to give it respect at a time when Bob wasn't necessarily super jazzed with anything Paul was putting forward. And this might come as quite a surprise to casual replacements fans, especially considering how this was the time period that produced one of, if not the best replacement song ever written, Bastards of Young. Inspired by the decision of Paul's other sister to move to New York to be an actress, Bastards of Young is almost a miracle of a song, perfect in execution and steeped in multiple layers of meaning. While some of the lines are very specific to Paul Westerberg himself, the fact is that the lyrics don't matter as much as the feeling of the song itself. It reeks of alienation 
disappointment, and frustration. Even the main riff itself is unsure of what it should be. A sing-song of up and down, up and down, like, oh well, what the hell. It's the guitar equivalent of kicking a rock down the middle of the railroad tracks outside of town, which, of course, was one of Bob Stenson's favorite activities. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's a song that still somehow makes you feel good when you listen to it, or at the very least, somewhat defiant. It's the rebel without a cause of alternative rock. Concerning the lines specific to the replacements, though, the line income tax deduction, hell of a function, it has two separate meanings. The first is about Paul himself, written because his mother induced labor on New Year's Eve so Paul could be a tax deduction for that calendar year. The second is about the band as a whole, who were prepared to throw away every opportunity that signing with a major label could give them while they were still writing their major label debut. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they were so confident that they would fuck up this opportunity that Westerberg believed the replacements would end up as nothing more than a loss on the Warner Brothers tax return, income tax deduction hell of a function. They're the producers. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that, that reference might be a little old now. <laughs> I think our audience has seen the producers. <laughs> so, okay. So, Tommy Erdely, uh, he mixed the album with Steve Felstead because they, they were done. That was it. Bastard, yeah, that's it. That's a wrap. They were yeah. mi let's mix the album. And then when they listened back, the replacements, they weren't really a fan yeah. of that mix. Tommy Stinson, he's like, I can't hear the bass. Where is my bass? And the rest of the guys, they accused Tommy Erdely of mixing the album with headphones on. Yeah. And because they thought, oh, he's an old man now. He's hard to hearing. <laughs> Stuff that young bratty people say. God damn it, Tommy Erdely was 36 when he produced that. <laughs> All right? I know. Believe me, I used to be a snotty bratty kid then too. And now that is Peak eight. Peak eight. And also, Tommy Erdely denies that he mixed it all with headphones. He's yeah. like, I, I was a fucking remote. <laughs> I've been in the business of Jimi, Jimi Hendrix. All right? I know not to mix with headphones all the time. Yeah. Plus, he was there with Steve Felstad, who worked on three out of the four replacements records. And Steve, he was staying up all night with Tommy Erdely, making sure it gets done. Like, I mean, they were on top of this, even though Steve was supposed to get married the next day. Yeah. Yeah, they finished the record at like three in the morning then paul comes over to the studio with like cases of beer and says hey you gotta have a bachelor party why not now <laughs> yeah and then two hours later at 5 a.m steve felsteps beautiful beautiful bride calls and says where the hell are you <laughs> we're getting married today did you forget about something <laughs> huh steve have you forgotten something? And then he had to quickly finish his beer and go while getting a lap dance for Chris Mars. No, not too long. Pappy the Clown. Pappy, Pappy the Clown yeah, was there. Just, yeah. That's the entertainment just, of the evening. Yeah, just a hark hark. <laughs> grinding on Steve Felstad. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, not too long after Steve Felstad got married, Bob Stenson got engaged. See, Bob had met a woman named Carlene Kreitler at the Uptown Bar in Minneapolis just a few months earlier in the spring of 1985. Bob had actually introduced himself to Carlene as a cook at Mama Rosa's, not as the guitarist in The Replacements. And it took weeks before she found out that he was in a band who just recorded their major label debut. I saw a very similar uh, storyline in 90 Day Fiance last week. <laughs> it are did you talking not turn about, out well. Are you talking about Bilal? What a piece of shit. <laughs> it did not turn out. It, I hope it doesn't work out. God, for that woman's sake. Run! Go back to Trinidad and or Tobago. Go back! (laughs) But in this, we've got a telling feature of Bob's personality and how he thought of his own life in the mid-80s. The co-best man at Bob's future wedding, who, by the way, was not his brother Tommy, but a drinking buddy named Ray, said that he got a sense that Bob just wanted to play the 7th Street entry in Minneapolis forever. Even the replacements joked that all Bob wanted to be was a cook at Mama Rose's. And the more you learn about Bob Stenson, the more you feel that for him, playing music was more of a hobby that got out of control than it was an actual career choice. And when the music got out of control, so too did Bob Stenson, although those two things aren't necessarily correlated. See, when the replacements were recording Tim, Bob was 25 years old, which is about the time some people with schizoaffective disorder start showing symptoms. For those who don't know, schizoaffective disorder is an illness that has features of both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, making it a terrifying and difficult diagnosis. Additionally, schizoaffective disorder is often seen in people who go through prolonged childhood trauma, and it's now thought that schizoaffective disorder was what was really wrong with Bob Stenson, in addition to alcohol and drug abuse. But on the night that Bob truly fucked up horribly for the first time, he was actually sober, attending a show at a house party with Carlene. During one of the bands, some dude casually remarked to Carlene that the band playing was pretty damn good. Very innocent comment. But Bob, schizoaffective as he was, didn't see this as an innocent exchange. Instead, he legitimately thought that Carlene and this guy shared a kiss, which they didn't, not even close. But regardless, Bob lost his grip with reality and punched Carlene in the middle of the party. Immediately, he returned to his body, panicked, and ran back home. Now, rightfully, Carlene called the cops and Bob was arrested. As a part of his sentence, Bob attended another inpatient treatment program, which worked just as well as every program had worked when Bob was a kid. Temporary at best. Now, Bob did stay sober for almost two months, and according to Carlene, the happy-go-lucky Bob came back for at least a little while. But all of it came crashing down at the album release party for Tim. Yes, Tim. That's what we're calling the album, actually, (laughs) Tim. Um, Because people were asking, like, what are you calling your album? And the guys were like, what do you mean? Like, Martha? Do we call it Joe? Hank? Tim? Ooh, Tim. I like Tim. Tim. I like it. Yeah, yeah. We now christen it Tim. (laughs) Yeah, they said that it was a a joke. They came up with it when they were drunk, and it was funny. And Mm -hmm. then when they got sober, it wasn't quite so funny anymore. But then when they got drunk again, it was funny again. So eventually, it's just like, fuck it. Okay, it's Tim. Tim. Yeah, that's great. They just called it Tim enough where that became... I mean, they also, they wanted to call it Whistler's Mammy, 
Again, let it bleed. Let it bleed, which also would have been cool to after let it be. Let it bleed would have also been a cool. But but Tim is still great. I still love that it's called <laughs> Tim. It's I so stand st- behind that too. I, t- I stand behind it. It's so stupid. <laughs> and, and so now it's time to release Tim. Yeah. Out into the public. <laughs> it's co- yeah. He's coming out party. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Late October 1985 at the Seventh Street entry, they had a huge blowout of five nights of packed shows. Huge on the final. Final night, they brought out champagne and everyone opened a bottle and started spraying it like they just won the Daytona 500. <laughs> yes, it was great. Yeah. And even though there was plenty of reason to celebrate it, they, I mean, because remember, they recorded and released a fantastic new record on a major label. They were tired and bored and cranky for doing five shows in a row. And bored is the offered operative word here. The replacements got so bored so easily. Yes. And according to Bob's fiance, Carlene, while the band was on stage, Paul grabbed a bottle, popped it open in Bob's direction so the cork would hit him in the face, and then handed the champagne bottle to Bob and said to him, you either take a drink or you get off my stage. Yeah. Now that version of the story is the most widely accepted. Or at least it's the version that's been retold thousands of times in articles, books, and casual conversations in record stores about how much of an asshole Paul Westerberg really is. Some even make the story much worse than it ever could be, saying that Bob chugged the entire champagne bottle while crying. Just tears going down his face. Yeah. That, by the way, was a version Bob himself would sometimes tell, depending on the audience. Bob had a lot of different versions of that story. According to Paul Westerberg, however... He never remembered saying anything like, drink or you're out of the band, or drink or get off my stage. And if he did say anything, he definitely doesn't believe that what he said was deliberately malicious. It's hard to know. It really is hard to know what happened, but it kind of did seem like it might not have happened. I mean, I think Westerberg, like every single one of the replacements, including Bob, was most likely more thoughtless than cruel. And Paul maintains that he never would have made that ultimatum to anyone who'd just gotten out of rehab, much less someone that he loved. Really, the genesis of the drinker you're out of the band story is a sickeningly exploitative article about Bob Stinson published in Spin Magazine in 1993, Mm -hmm. six years after Bob parted ways from the replacements and not too long after he died. It really is, that article really is one of the worst pieces of exploitation that I've ever yeah. seen in ter- not even just rock journalism, but just journalism in, in general. There's a whole story behind the article, uh, but the editor who made the story the way that it was should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, it's horrific to read. Mm-hmm. That article quoted Bob's by then ex-wife, Carlene, who, as is pointed out by author Bob Mayer, she gets quite a bit wrong about that night at 7th Street Entry. She gets a lot wrong about the timeline of the replacements, too. While she said in the article that it was Bob's last show and that Bob left the band two weeks later, Bob didn't actually leave the band for another 10 highly eventful months in which some of the most famous replacement stories actually occurred. Now, even though the replacements were still acting like a band with nothing to lose, they were now in fact signed to a major label, meaning that management duties were soon becoming far more than Peter Jesperson was equipped to handle. Yeah, because remember, he was out of his depth when it came to major label stuff like (laughs) merch deals and promotional stuff and markets and regional market share, (laughs) Excel spreadsheet, synergy, (laughs) business papers, business Business papers, business papers. (laughs) It's very complicated, you know, And, and 
Peter. A lot of ins, a lot of outs. <laughs> a lot of what have you. And okay, hello, we're millennials. <laughs> and Peter Jesperson, he knew the best thing for the band was to find someone who knew how to do all that and do it well. Yeah. So the replacements brought in a new management team named High Noon, run by two dudes named Russ and Gary, who got the job after a 12-hour bar hopping session <laughs> in which Tommy Stinson almost killed everyone by covering Gary's eyes and playing Guess Who while Gary was driving down Hennepin Avenue. Is that like an outtake from the movie Clifford? <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> oh my God, it really is. Oh, it's all coming together. It's all coming it's together. It's all coming together. I'm so glad you're finally coming over to my side on how brilliant Clifford is. It's a terrible movie. <laughs> I made it 20 minutes. It's terrible. And I I, I love movies. I, I, I champion them all the time, and I, especially the efforts and, and dreams that people have to, to make it in, in the entertainment world. But why? Why, and Clifford? <laughs> for some reason, Martin Short, in one of his finest fucking performances in Charles Grodin, being the most Charles Grodin that he has ever been in his I don't want to do that persona. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love it. Why, did I, why would I want to do that? Why? I don't want to do that. No, no, you can't have my car. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, though, the replacements liked Russ and Gary enough to hire them. And when the band called to say High Noon had booked the job, Russ and Gary were ecstatic. We got the fucking replacements. We got the replacements. <laughs> and that marked the last known occasion that they would ever be made happy by the replacements ever again. Now, eventually it came. How hard could it be? How hard <laughs> can it be? Really? Now, eventually, it came time to talk about a music video for Tim. This is 1986, after all, when the album was released. But since a video was something that the replacements were told they should do, it became something that they refused to do. Finally, Paul said that they'd do a video if Warner Brothers got them booked on the highly popular country music variety TV show Hee Haw, where Paul would lip sync Waitress in the Sky. <laughs> Give me 48 hours. <laughs> I'll make it happen. It's not gonna happen. Uh, you did not grow up with Hee Haw. I grew up with Hee Haw. The replacements ain't getting on Hee Haw. <laughs> <laughs> but what started out as a joke turned into a bargain. If the replacements were given a national TV spot, then they would have to participate in the making of a music video. And as it turned out, Warner Brothers had connections at where else but Saturday Night Live. They called Paul Westberg's bluff, really. He's yeah. like, that's my big fucking mouth. Look at this. <laughs> well, conveniently, Saturday Night Live creator and producer Lauren Michaels was close friends with Warner Brothers president Mo Austin. And Mo personally called Lauren. I don't think they were like close personal friends. How can you be friends with one demon and a devil? <laughs> They're associates. <laughs> okay, yeah. Associates, yes, associates. But he still called him. <laughs> and he asked, yes. hey, would you consider putting on this new band we got called The Replacements? And so The Replacements were put on a short list of acts to book. And this was unwisely done without anyone at Saturday Night Live seeing The Replacements live. Now, this didn't mean that The Replacements were actually booked. But just after they played a show in Chicago... They were contacted by the Saturday Night Live booker because the musical act for that week had dropped out last minute. And so the replacements appeared on Saturday Night Live as literal replacements <laughs> for the Pointer Sisters. I'm so
And that would have been the song the Pointer That's Sisters would have played. That's all we get? Really? Oh, man. How much more do you need? Okay, okay. Maybe we'll play it at the end. No, we have a band to play at the end. After that? No! We'll you can listen to it anytime you want. We'll see. Okay, so, yes. Due to a crazy turn of events, the replacements were due to perform on live national television in New York City. Yeah. Saturday Night Live with Harry Dean Stanton hosting the show. Harry Dean Stanton, of yes. all fucking people. Because he, he was just in Pretty in Pink. Mm-hmm. Love that movie well, and the soundtrack. He was having a career resurgence yes. at this time. Repo Man, Christine. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a few years back, he did, uh, uh, was it, uh, Escape from New York? Yeah. So, yeah, great, great repertoire. Yeah, he really movies. does. Yeah, it's Harry Dean Stanton. He's the fucking best. Yes. Yeah. So, so and so the replacements are doing it with him. Great. I mean, not together, but, you know, on the same show. <laughs> yeah. So the guys, they get to Rockefeller Plaza at 10 a.m. that day, January 18th, 1986. Wow, day before my third birthday. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we're all we're together in this. And not just the band and Peter, actually. They brought their girlfriends, their managers, Russ and Gary, people from Warner Brothers, people from Twin Tone. Paul Stark came too. Yeah. Yeah. He actually ran into Al Franken, who was producing the show, and said, hey, because they went to prep school together. That's the craziest thing. I know. <laughs> And he knows Yanni. Weird, right? It's all coming together. Okay, so yes, the replacements, they get there really early and they do their sound check and everything. And as you know, the show starts really late, around 11.30 p.m. And the band usually goes on at about midnight or so. So they're stuck there all day and with each other Mm -hmm. in a nice dressing room full of fruit plates and danishes and juice and pastries and all that stuff. And of course, it didn't take long for them to start making sculptures with food and <laughs> painting the back wall with coffee and meat and cheeses. Yeah. Now, this ain't like John Belushi, Saturday Night Live. Like, th- this is the season where, like, anth- they tried getting celebrities as... Uh, this is when Saturday Night Live was, like, dog shit. Oh, yeah. Didn't they get Robert Downey Jr.? Robert Downey Jr. Yes. Yeah, they, there was a bunch of... Cele- like, John Lovitz, I think, was on that season. But, uh, yeah, it was a, it was dog shit. Dog shit Saturday Night Live. Wow. Okay. What an honor <laughs> yeah. to be on this show. <laughs> but they're also trying to be nice and professional, and it's it's not a party anymore. Oh, yeah. No. All, all green rooms, yes. They it's have... not Chevy Chase doing cocaine, you know? So what I'm saying is that there's no alcohol allowed in the dressing room. Actually, is what Marcus is trying to say. <laughs> yes. There's nothing fermented allowed. Only prunes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, it, it, just imagine, Paul, Chris, Tommy, just sitting on the couch, nervously staring at their hands, their beer-drinking hands. <laughs> While Bob paces back and forth like a hungry Sumatran tiger, you know, just thinking of that toddler on the other side of the fence. I just want to eat it. I just want it. But that toddler is really beer. (laughs) And Peter knew that they wouldn't or couldn't, maybe couldn't go on without something to drink. Yeah. So, I mean, they're the replacements, duh. So, luckily, one of the band's crew members, Monty, he smuggled in some beer and liquor for the guys, which was a great relief. And as they're opening up their beers, they hear a... And it was Harry Dean Stanton going, hey, guys, how's it going? Is that beer? <laughs> and it cue, cue to five minutes later, Harry Dean Stanton is belly laughing with the guys while shotgunning beer at the beer and saying, man. And so that I was told that when I joined the Navy, be the ship's cook. You won't see action. What I didn't know is that the ship went straight into the Battle of Okinawa. <laughs> <laughs> it's and, not just beer it is liquor that Harry Dean Stanton's drinking and then there's another knock <laughs> uh, Mr. Dean Stanton I mean Mr. Stanton <laughs> you were requested on set 10 minutes ago 
<laughs> and so Harry Dean Stanton stumbled out of the replacements dressing room and into the set and onto national live TV. <laughs> you can watch the whole thing. Hi, I'm Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> anyway, so the show actually starts out fine, not yeah. very funny, but that's not unusual. <laughs> so then... Finally, it's time for the replacements to go on. And they're doing Bastards of Young. Yeah. That one fucking great song. And Lorne Michaels, earlier, he was a little nervous about it because it had the word bastard on it. Uh, so, you know, there was a whole thing. He had to get, like, a sheet of the lyrics and everything. It was all fine and checked out with the standards and practices people. It's like, okay, so all set, good to go. Okay, you could do that. So the guys go on, and they do their song, and they sound fantastic. Yeah. And they all look fantastic. I mean, I mean kind of. You, you can't really see them that well. None of them are standing on their mark where the spotlight is. Yeah, because <laughs> someone told them, hey, you gotta stand here on the mark, and if you want the replacements to not do something, you tell them to do something. Yes, they didn't understand the whole term of camera blocking. And only Chris <laughs> they Mars... Under, they understood it. Oh, they understood it just fine. They just ignored it. Chris Mars is the only one you can see really well because he's a drummer and, and he's, you know, he can't move. But, yeah. but, but you know what? The whole thing, everything came out great. Well, except there, there was this one little moment where uh, right before the guitar solo, Paul goes up to Bob and yells, come on, fucker! Right <laughs> off mic and it wasn't a thing they were just all riled up they were rocking out you can't even hear it well you can do, kind do we have it you can kind of hear it like like let's it's like it is barely audible in like in the actual broadcast but i mean you can it's more just like come on f- and then that's it. Yeah, yeah. So as far as the live television goes, yes, absolutely. So uh, the band they finish and they walk back into the dressing room like fucking heroes. Everyone's cheering, high fiving each other, kissing their girlfriends. You know, woohoo, we did it! Wayne's World party time, <laughs> that kind of thing. And then they hear a. <laughs> and it's Lauren Michaels standing in the hallway. They're like, oh, are you here to celebrate too? Would you like some beer? Uh, never mind. Oh, you- oh, that's, a, that's a bad one. Anyway, but Lorne wasn't there to celebrate. No. You see, he was in the control room when they played Bastards of Young. And he heard the come on fucker part, which picked up very clearly from Paul's microphone. Yes. In the control room, you could just hear it crystal clear, but not so much on TV, like we said. You could barely, no one would have noticed no, it at all on not TV. Not at all. So Lorne, who is famously a dick, a dick, started going off on Gary and Russ with a rant, a lot, like a really loud, like, how dare you do this? Do you know what you just fucking did? The replacements <laughs> are never allowed back on SNL, period. And what the hell is that on the wall? And Paul Paul was like, oh, that's a sculpture made out of meats and cheeses and, and coffee. Coffee, coffee. Yes, it's coffee. That's a painting. It's a very good likeness of me. Yeah. <laughs> it adds to the minimalist decor of the whole room. And and then fucking Lord is like, God damn it, you're never playing on TV ever again. Just slams the door. And then the replacements had to play another song yeah, they play on kids. the show yeah. because you have to do two. And Lorne was technically not correct then. And what did they play? Uh, Kiss Me on the Butt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they played Kiss Me on the Butt. Yes, it's exactly and what they Lauren played. And then Lauren was like, oh, God damn you. And he threw his hat to the ground. He God was like, damn you, damn replacement. Well, I mean, he did have a re. I mean, the reason why he was so insanely upset is because one, it was the second time that a fuck had gone out on air for Saturday Night Live and had already, Charles Rocket had said fuck years before and it almost got them canceled. And like I said, this was a season when Saturday Night Live was fucking dog shit. Yeah, no, they they did. They got canceled later that season. And then 
brought back like at the last second. last minute reprieve. So like Laura Michaels is thinking like one fuck up and we're out of here. And it was and he was thinking it's these fucking assholes from Minneapolis, these dickheads that are going to ruin everything for me. Oh, no, there's more. <laughs> you see? Oh, and by the way, one 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 small thing right before the band went out to go play Bastards of Young, Bob tripped and fell and broke his guitar <laughs> and he ha- and GE Smith like GE Smith on the Saturday Night Live band. GE Smith had to hand him a guitar for like, Bob to use. Don't break it. <laughs> <laughs> and also when at the end of the song, Bob did a backflip and he was wearing this weird leotard and the back of the leotard ripped and his ass show his bare ass showed on fucking live tv just for a second (laughs) (laughs) yeah those small girlfriends like weird striped thing that that it it looked like a genie thing yeah it looked yeah it looked cool like Like, i dream a genie thing yeah yeah. he looked great yeah he looked great yes but you could (laughs) if you want to see bob stinson's ass (laughs) oh and if you want to hear one more tiny petty little thing you know how every saturday night live episode is available on peacock if you look up the fucking this episode the harry dean stanton episode they cut out the replacement's performance. You can't go and see it on P- every other fucking, but out of some petty fucking thing, Lauren, yeah, just make sure that those dirty, <laughs> those, na- the hounds. Those, those naughty replacements are, don't have a spot oh, on Saturday Dr. Night Live. Evil, yeah, I that's, forgot, yeah. But that's what the voice is. The <laughs> Dr. Evil voice, it, he said it again and again that it's just Lauren Michaels. <laughs> Oh, yeah. He's very open that Dr. Evil's just Lorne Michaels. Yeah. Make sure the replacements aren't seen. Yes. Well, so that's how fucking petty he is. So it's it's available like some people, like someone, like I think Noel Murray put it on Twitter. So you can see it there. Yeah. It's on Twitter. Please check it out. It's really cool. It's also on Vimeo. It's it's fantastic. And and please, Rick, ask your your local NBC affiliate to put that back on broadcast (laughs) or something. Okay. So, yes, the replacements, they did ruin any chance of appearing on TV for a long time after that. Three years. Three years. And uh, didn't get ever get back on SNL. I think Paul Westbrook did much later. Yeah. But I but back maybe we'll talk about it later but I think he kind of had to just check the hallways yeah. just, it was kind of like don't tell Lauren kind of thing yeah. it was it was a whole thing later yeah. later in the 90s I think they're one of like 10 bands to be banned from Saturday Night Live yes, forever yeah. they're actually banned yeah. which is great <laughs> and they were one of the first to ever be banned actually yeah, yeah. oh yeah, hey, yeah. I think I think the one the one before them was Fear got banned before they did oh yeah, yeah. that's right yeah. yes okay oh yes and I said there's more yeah. because they went back to their hotel room where Bob completely trashed the place which resulted in 1100 dollars in damages that Warner Brothers had to pay for, which ruined Warner Brothers' relationship with Lorne Michaels as well as the A&R people, their management team, Russ and Gary, and anyone that came within 10 feet of the replacements that night. (laughs) But remember, the replacements still they still did well that night. And it was on TV. But not in Minneapolis. You see, at least not live. The local NBC affiliate there had scheduled a cerebral palsy telephone that night. So they weren't planning to broadcast Saturday Night Live uh, featuring Minnesota's favorite local band. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't even, they weren't even played in Minneapolis that night. It, I mean, like people complained and then they said, OK, maybe we'll do it afterwards, like at like the next day yeah. or something. I think they put it on at like 2 a.m. or something. But also, lucky for them, someone got a hold of the tape at the TV station and brought it over to the main room at First Avenue to screen it for the local fans and friends of the replacements. And when Harry Dean Stanton introduced the replacements, they got the loudest, fiercest, most hometown cheer they never did see. (laughs) 
but it was awesome. It was epic. Yeah. I mean, they finally got that. Like, you know, it's, everyone's so proud of them. Everybody is seen like, these are our guys. They made it. And the replacements aren't there to see it. They're not there to hear it. I mean, it's a victory. Yeah. But the most replacements-like victory there can possibly be. What else can there be? <laughs> and as it was, it's kind of the last victory for the replacements. Because the next chapter of the replacement story is a dark one indeed. And that is where we shall conclude our story on the next episode of No Dogs in Space. Yes. Next episode is 4.5 because <laughs> I have stated I have stated a lot that I'm never doing a five-point series. Uh-huh. And, and, and I had to, to restate my uh, mission statement that the story takes as long as it takes to tell. Hence 4.5. Uh, that's that's what we do. Yes. Yes. I'm very excited. This is, oh, we're going to keep this going. We're almost done. Finally, we're here. And I'm so glad. Thank you. I do understand to be a No Dogs in Space fan. You must be a patient person. And I really appreciate all you guys. We yeah. were dealing with a global health problem. Yeah. Yeah. And we both got COVID and it, and it took me a very, it took me about a month and a half to recover. It took you an extra long time and it was a lot of work. And, but I'm so glad that we finally got here and we're, we're here again and we're getting things started and, and anything I, it's better than ever. Yeah, it really is. I, I, I'm having so much fun with this and I've, and I was a fan of the replacements before, but now I'm a fucking super fan. Same. Like it's, uh, yeah. And Peter Jesperson. Oh man, I love that man's voice. <laughs> I, I, oh, by the way, uh, of any extra sources and everything speaking of which um <clears throat> definitely I, I checked out a lot of podcast interviews uh with uh peter jesperson just talking about just his time in the replacements and uh, a really good one is the late night vinyl with dave woodcock fantastic uh, fantastic because he lets peter talk yeah which i love i yeah. love i love that thing about interviewers i don't know this if, is my favorite thing if i may give a little bit of advice to anybody out there who does a, an interview podcast especially a music interview podcast just let them talk. Yeah. Stop interrupting them with questions. And Just let, let them talk. Let Peter Jesperson go. Like that man, I could, I could, he should have his own podcast. Yeah, he he's, really should. He's fantastic, of course. And oh, and, and I also checked out uh, A Man Called Destruction, The Life and Music of Alex Chilton from Box Stops to Big Star to Backdoor Man by Holly George Warren. Fantastic book. A really great read. And it really gave me a lot of insight with of, about Alex Chilton that we used in this episode. So th that was a fantastic biography. And and, uh, and also Siren Song, My Life in Music by Gareth Murphy and Seymour Stein. Uh, it, it's uh, it's about Seymour Stein's life. Uh, it reads very much like Kid Stays in the Picture, you know, like Grandpa Seymour, like sitting by the fire telling the kids who's gay in the music industry and <laughs> James Brown almost ripping up his taint, you know. It's like, oh, kids, come closer kind of thing. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. And I've, I do, once I get some time for some uh, pleasure reading, I definitely want to read that one. It sounds fucking amazing. Definitely. And of course, if you would... Uh, like to listen to the music that we played uh, on this episode, uh, you can go to my Spotify profile. Um, it's just Marcus Parks, and we got every single uh, episode of No Dogs in Space has a playlist to go along with the episode. And also, there is a uh, we also have a uh, YouTube playlist as mm -hmm. well. So check out No Dogs in Space. And so, in, in case you don't happen to have a Spotify account, check it out on YouTube if you can. And uh, and also our our Instagram. We we are on social media. No Dogs Pod on Instagram. If you want to check out for updates or behind the scenes stuff or anything fun that we're going to do mm -hmm, in, yeah. in the future, any kind of an, uh, uh, announcements or yeah. so, as such. Everything like that. Uh, and of course, every single week we play a song from a band that has sent us a submission. Uh, and this week uh, we have, I fucking love this band. 
Finally, we get a Minneapolis band. Finally. Yes. yes. This, you know, I love the Twin Cities. Uh, I love the Twin well, Cities, too. My best friends are from there. Our buddies, Frank and Trace and mm-hmm. Bill Corbett, they're all from there. Oh, yeah. St. Paul has uh, one of my favorite record stores in America. Uh, Agartha Records is, uh, I fucking adore that place so fucking much. I go there every single time uh, we play Minneapolis or St. Paul. Uh, but the band today is Scrunchies. Their newest album, Feral Coast, is out on Dirt Nap Records, and it's fucking awesome. But we're going to play y'all a song called Wichita off the 2018 album Stunner, which, of course, will be made available on the episode's playlist. Or you can just go and fucking search them, you know, find them on Bandcamp, of course, Uh, scrunchies.bandcamp.com. If you want to see them live, they're going to be playing shows. And I I know they're playing a lot of Midwestern shows like, you know, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Louisville. If you want to see if you can catch them live, I know they've got shows booked until like late August. So if you want to see exact dates and venues, go to Scrunchies. Scrunchies.bandcamp.com. Uh, got the stamp of approval on this one. This band's fucking great. Yes. So thanks everyone for listening to No Dogs in Space. We will see y'all when we see y'all. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, buddy. Goodbye. 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 This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. 
Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.